Prime and Thanksgiving. Do they go together? Details at 11. It's almost 11. The most widely performed comic operetta of the British duo Gilbert and Sullivan, no relation to Bill, is the Mikado, which satirizes British cultured society and the ruling class of the time. In the story, the ruler of the Oriental country, the Mikado, made it his object all sublime he shall achieve in time to make the punishment fit the crime. He has in mind to punish the annoying with comparable irritations. All prosy, dull society sinners who chatter and bleat and bore are sent to hear sermons from mystical Germans who preach from ten to four. The amateur tenor whose vocal villainies all desire to shirk <clears throat> shall, during off hours, exhibit his powers to Madame Tussaud's wax work. Hope you aren't waiting for applause. The advertising quack who wearies with tales of countless cures, his teeth I've enacted, shall all be extracted by terrified amateurs. The billiard sharp who anyone catches, his doom's extremely hard. He's made to dwell in a dungeon cell on a spot that's always barred. And there he plays extravagant matches in fitless finger stalls on a cloth untrue with a twisted cue and elliptical billiard balls. <laughs> Sounds very entertaining, little sadistic, but fairly reasonable, yes? <laughs> we would all love to irritate our keenest annoyances, but should we be allowed? Should we be allowed to punish according to how we feel? Are we willing to endure the verdicts we would impose on other people? not seeing anyone jump for that. Because we all know that we are all just as guilty as those that offend us, aren't we? Should the punishment actually fit the crime? Let's go deeper. There is more to punishment than just the crime. The people involved are far more important to God. All the records of crimes here on earth will eventually be destroyed. But the response of the people involved will have eternal effects. We must be very careful, on the one hand, not to be too lenient and prevent consequences when offenders need the pain to motivate change in behavior. It's one of the hardest lessons of being a parent. Plaintiffs need restitution for things taken unlawfully. But we must also be careful, on the other hand, not to be too harsh, making no room for redemption, reconciliation, or recovery when it can be allowed. How to find that balance? Oh yes, we should ask God what he thinks we should do. Bible says an eye for an eye, right? 
Well, it does, but anyone who has children or worked with children knows you can't allow an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth in every situation. The goal in training children is to train adults that respect rules and consequences enough to think about them before they act and to understand that these aren't made to satisfy our feelings, that we are all going to be guilty of something at some time. Children have to be made to follow this before they are old enough to understand it. The Bible speaks of using the rod of giving blows to a child to drive out the foolishness in his heart. Proverbs 22, 15. But what about adults? Did you know there is no mention of any prison system in God's, I guess you'd say, his booklet of society that he gives to the children of Israel in Mount Sinai? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, no prison is mentioned anywhere. Interesting to think about, isn't it? God prescribes swift, short consequences and immediate restitution upon conviction, sometimes even more than what was taken or destroyed. Capital punishment was deemed a worthy option for some crimes, including kidnapping. This is where an eye for an eye was actually first written. Three times. First, in Exodus 21-24, in payment for accidental physical damage to a pregnant woman and her child. An eye for an eye. That's sobering. Secondly, for anyone who inflicted permanent injury on his neighbor, in Leviticus 24-20. You haul off and smack your neighbor, bust their eye, well, guess whose eye gets to be busted too? And third, Deuteronomy 19.21, for punishing a malicious witness. And God specifies not to show any pity to these offenders. As relatively new children of God, these rules were necessary to establish respect, the fear of the Lord, an awareness of the holiness and reverence inherent in dealing with the Almighty. And we still need them today. But God's way of dealing with injustice goes further than just the societal level in the physical world. God has plans for spiritual justice. God's only prison is for Satan and his demons the abyss, until Satan, the demons, and the unrighteous are thrown into the lake of fire. After every chance to repent has been given, after the whole world has heard the gospel, after every life has been judged, according to Revelation 20, 10 through 15. Only then does God use a prison for humans, and it's only to keep the rebellious out of the paradise he intends for us all. You see, the spiritual side of crime and punishment is just as important as the physical side to God. Our God is a God of freedom, not of imprisonment. He wants us to be free from sin, free from guilt, and free from worry. And that's just in this life. 
In the next life, he has more freedom in store. Imagine freedom from time. It is our enemy that is all about indefinite torment with no escape, about ever-increasing chains and bondage, about the destruction of all that is good in our lives. Thankfully, indefinite torment is what he has coming one day. And even though our societies have made prisons when God did not, even though we are called to be submitted to authority, we are also called, at times, to deny that same authority and risk time in man-made prisons if a government requires us to go against our God and not act surprised, we get punished. We are called sometimes to do the impossible, to do the illegal, to do the unthinkable, and risk imprisonment for it. Our brothers and sisters in other countries have been doing just that for many years. But God's word and the gospel continue to spread. Churches and converts continue to multiply, and sometimes Laws are reversed and prisoners even set free unexpectedly. The point is that prisons and other human institutions or rules do not stop God's will and his work. They just cause more seeds to be planted in new places. God used the capital punishment laws on the books in ancient Persia to kill off Haman and his cohorts even though the law against the Jews was also still on the books. And he rescued Daniel from the lions, even though the law was against him. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Peter more than once. But eventually Peter, Paul, almost all the rest of the disciples were executed for their witness to Christ, as Christ was executed for his witness to himself. Even though God is a God of justice, righteousness, and taking vengeance on evil, God does not promise freedom from suffering, even unfair suffering in this life. We are called to die ourselves every day when we take up the cross of our Savior. We're called to live and die under the laws and punishments of whatever country he plants us in. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to change that country's laws and punishments to match God's as much as we can. But it does mean we don't expect this world to perfectly reflect God's justice. This world is not anyone's eternal paradise. This world is a war zone. And Jesus acknowledged this when he gave notice of his mission on this planet and quoted Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. There are poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. There are plenty of those too. To proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Captives and prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Because we need to hear that. God knows what we must face and endure. He did it too. 
He cares about justice. He cares about crimes and punishments, about truth and vindication. But he also knows there's more to our story than just the battles we fight. Some of the injuries of this ancient and current war include bitterness and unforgiveness. We didn't sin, but the sin of someone else has caused us a wound. And then the enemy uses that to hurt us again and again. And if he has his way, to turn us against God and each other. The enemy wants us to hurt and to hurt one another, especially in the name of justice. So let us not walk in bondage to offense. Remember the parable of the unforgiving servant who was forgiven, got to skip his just punishment, but refused to extend that same grace and mercy to his fellow who owed far less. We are called to forgive. Not just to bring freedom to the offenders, but also to bring freedom from condemnation and bitterness in ourselves. Life is too short and too hard and too important for us to invest ourselves in such bankrupt schemes. There is no life in revenge. There is no healing in paying back. There is no growth in grudges. There is only decay. That's not God's plan for us. This is not the abundant life he came to bring us. But wait, you say. What about justice for the innocent and the oppressed? What about God's righteousness? What about my unjust suffering or others' unjust suffering? Where is God's plan and character and all of that? Crime and thanksgiving? The importance of justice. The universal human experience of injustice. And the proven incapability of man to enforce justice on himself impartially is why we need laws and punishments. But that's not the whole picture. The law is our tutor to bring us to who? Christ. To help us see that we need a Savior. All of us need a Savior. All have sinned, past tense. It's a done deal. We're born into sin. We offend God by our very existence. Criminals should be caught and should be punished so that we will understand the law and justice and hope for it and work for it. But we must bring in the grace and forgiveness of Christ or we will all despair. For all have sinned. All of us are just as guilty before God's throne as the worst of us. And then there's that lovely phrase, but God, rich in mercy, came to save us. He did not soften our punishment one bit. 
but he took it himself instead of destroying us with it. Justice demands punishment. All cultures agree with that. But mercy takes the punishment. No one can do better than that. Christ's death was necessary and sufficient. No one can add to it or take away from it. No one would survive without it. The punishment fit all crime. But the innocent Son of God was greater than either. That is our Savior. That is our hope. Because laws always have loopholes. Just ask any teenager. But you said... Or ask a four-year-old. They can do it just as well. <laughs> no one will ever hear every apology that they are owed. Darn it. But of course, that would mean I'd have a lot more apologizing to do, wouldn't it? I was asked this morning, do you know who's preaching? I said, I hope they find somebody good. <laughs> I suppose time will tell. Punishments don't always have the effects we want. As long as we have a sinful nature, there will be crime. There must be, or how will we know that we need a Savior to rescue us from our sinful selves? How will we ever find him except in despair that we cannot save ourselves? We must see how much we need a Savior. Or we will never see how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. We are all criminals of God's law. We all need a Savior or we are doomed. But we all have a Savior and so we are rescued. We can be saved from the wrath to come. We can walk in freedom, in forgiveness, in healing, in the grace and the truth that come through Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Or as the group Mercy Me likes to say it, that's the best news ever. Worthy of a lifetime of gratitude, yes? Okay, well then let's do a little gratituding right now. In this season of Thanksgiving, let's remember where we came from, how far God has brought us, how we can walk in freedom as we walk in gratitude to the God who saves us. It's hard to fear when you're busy, busy being thankful. It's hard to be oppressed or depressed when you're busy being thankful. It's hard to be discontented and offended when you're busy being thankful. I remember once my brother at Thanksgiving surprised me. Most of us were giving thanks for, oh, this good thing or this good relationship or this new step or 
whatever. And those are all good things to be thankful for too. But what he said was he was thankful for all of the challenges and all of the hard things in his life. I kind of looked at him funny. You want to explain that a little bit? So he said he was thankful for those things because of the effect that they'd had on him. Because they forced him to his knees in prayer. They brought him closer to God. They made him aware of the truth again that he had nothing to offer and that God had everything. And it's something that has stuck with me. This was many years ago, but I've had occasion to remember that. Because it's not something the world will tell you. The world doesn't say, uh, you don't need revenge, that's just going to eat you up. The world says, hit him again! Till you feel like stopping. Whoa, no, wait a minute. Feelings make good servants, but bad masters. And I say to each of you, and to me, we all have so many reasons to be thankful to God reasons to be joyful in our life, that if we try to think of them all, there would be no time for fear, despair, guilt, doubt, or anxiety. Let's try it. We'll start with physical circumstances because those are probably the place most of us spend most of our complaints, aren't they? Especially when you're driving down the highway. Anybody? You should hear me when I yell at other drivers. <laughs> I am not a thankful person on the road like I should be. Let's zoom out a little bit. Do you have running water, electrical power, solid walls and a roof, bed with a mattress, refrigerator with food, a toilet, windows, a door that locks, working vehicle, more than one set of clothes? Source of consistent income, even if it's not as much as you would like. Better off than so many people in the world. Even in this country. How many homeless do we drive by each week that can't lay claim to any of these blessings? And how many Christians are prevented from having these things because of the Savior they would have instead? We all have reasons to complain about our country, our state, and our neighbors. But we live in comfy homes, not bombed out basements like those in Ukraine. We complain about our police when they pull us over, but they don't come arrest us in the night. They don't come break up our church service like our Asian brothers and sisters sometimes have to deal with. We all want to change our government in different ways, but our leaders don't send us to prison camps for our faith or even for complaining about the government like they do in communist nations. And it's still legal to own a Bible. It's legal to worship God in public and it's legal to publish Christian ideas in this country. What our persecuted family would give to have these freedoms. How about socially? Do you have any friends at all? You do? I shouldn't act so surprised, I'm sorry. <laughs> do you have confidence when you're around people who love you? Do 
Do you have family that accepts you as their own and loves you? Can you remember being appreciated or thanked or missed? Have you been recognized for something good that you did? Are you allowed to go into public places without any warnings or escorts or special insignia that you have to wear? Must be nice. Not everyone can. Many Christians worldwide are kept out of businesses, kept out of church buildings, or kept inside their homes for their witness. And we haven't even discussed all the spiritual things yet, have we? We have truth we can know and understand, 66 books worth, in our own language. We can know some things for sure. We have freedom to worship in church, at home. We have many different kinds of churches to choose from. And I just have to say, if you're in Tulsa and you can't find a church for you, <laughs> there's something wrong because there's so many different kinds of churches here. Wow. It's like the joke, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. We have books, magazines, podcasts, TV shows, movies, blogs, and comic books about the truth God has revealed in his word. We have seminars, radio, CDs, tapes, and videos, and the internet to help us remember the truth. And remember how all those false beliefs have already been beaten. There's nothing new under the sun. Even New Age stuff isn't new. We have so many options, so many possibilities, so many things that we could be doing that it's a little overwhelming. Sometimes we get frantic trying to take advantage of all of it, right? But God, our Savior, guides here as well. Remember his words to Martha. Mary has chosen the good part. Part. That means not all, right? It means one part, not several parts. The good part. Could it be that perhaps we aren't supposed to take advantage of every possibility? It will not be taken away from her, he said. That good part even though it's one part, will count, will mean something, will bear fruit. Remember his words to the seven churches in Revelation. Hold fast what you have till I come. Didn't say anything about what they didn't have. We spend a lot of our complaining time focused on what we don't have, what we didn't get. What Santa didn't bring. We can't have everything, can we? We can't even grasp every part of what God has shown us. But we are to hold fast to what we do have, to what we do know. Paul says, live up to the truth you have attained. Paul, 
Paul himself even admits that he doesn't think he's attained all of it. He spent a good part of his life studying, a lot more than I have. Makes me feel better about the stuff I don't know yet. And whatever we do have, we should be thankful because there are always people with less. Who bears God's wrath? Who walks in darkness? Who is confused, ill-equipped for life, foundering daily in a fruitless search for meaning in a hopeless existence? Not us. Nope, that's not where we are. We've been rescued. Our good shepherd hunted us down, his hunted sheep, and rescued us from the beasts that would take us captive and destroy us. And now he wants us to help him rescue more. And not because we are special, not because we are smart or tough or worthy. We're a bunch of sheep. Sheep are not very intimidating. Sheep are not cool, are they? They're kind of goofy looking. So are we. We walk in freedom, peace, joy, and hope because we have a Savior who gives us richly every good and perfect gift. We know the end of the story and the important parts of the beginning and the middle because our merciful Father has shown us. We have a comforter, a guide, a helper inside who brings to our remembrance all that our Savior has taught us and is a guarantee of our place in the mansion with many rooms that have all been prepared just for each of us. How do we keep forgetting these things? How can we help to build a stronger connection to the truth we know, to the Lord that we know lives? The most important decision you can ever make is where to put your attention. Squirrel. Our society today with our cell phones and computer screens trains us to be distracted. You ever watch a commercial from the 70s? It feels boring because it's slow. And back then, we were all slow. That was our speed. You watch a car commercial now, and they shove like 50 pictures into five seconds. I would say it makes you sick to your stomach, but it's not really about your stomach. It's about your brain. I used to write things on the board for my students to read. High school students to read. And these weren't stupid kids. I mean, they, they could read well enough. But they had been trained to not look outside of arm's length <laughs> and these people are driving now. 
it would be the whole class period before one of them would look up and go, hey, that's what we're supposed to be doing? I hope our Lord doesn't see us that way, although I'm sure we've all done it. We need extra work on remembering. We need extra work on focusing. And we need them to finish anything. But especially to finish what God has called us to. To lead someone to Christ, to support someone as they grow, is not a 30-second soundbite. My phone's very convenient, but I like not being around it for a while. And I like watching my favorite show or a movie, but it's really nice to just get outside and just kind of stand for a while sometimes. Most important decision you can ever make is where to put your attention. If we focus on what's wrong with the world, like a vulture looking for dead carcasses, we will find what we look for. There's plenty of it. If we focus on what God is doing, on what is eternal and invisible, like a hummingbird searching for nectar, guess what? We can find that too. We get a nice dose of it every time our missionaries come back. Every moment is a choice. Our eyes, our thoughts, our attention will be on something. Take a hold of that steering wheel in your mind and let's be purposeful about it. As we remember reasons to be grateful, let's act grateful. As we remember reasons to be joyful, let's act joyful. As we remember forgiveness, provision, healing, direction, restoration, and hope, let's offer what we have to the wounded we meet each day. There is so much more than just crimes and punishments, more than just wounds and pain and loss to this life, more than just what is wrong and tragic and disappointing. Those things are real, but there's more, so much more to be thankful for. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also, and your attention too. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Be thankful, even in the war zone. Isaiah 61, 8b says, For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery and injustice. Isaiah 61, 11 says, For as the earth produces its growth, and as a garden enables what is sown to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Righteousness and praise. Justice and mercy. Grace and truth. Crime and thanksgiving. 
Yeah, they actually do go together. 